Good Monday, everyone. Welcome to the BallQuest.com Rocky Top Rewind podcast brought to you by Blue Water Climate Control. Thank our good friends at uh, Blue Water Climate Control for their continued support. You can follow them on Twitter at BlueH2O underscore climate, or you can check them out online at BlueWaterClimateControl.com. With Austin Price and Rob Lewis, I'm Brent Hubbs. Glad to have you along with us today. Taking a look at one of the most memorable games for me, and a game of all the games that we've done has as many storylines as any that we've done, and that is the 2005 Tennessee LSU game, uh, the Monday night affair where Tennessee had to travel down day of and, and come back in this game. We'll get into all the travel details um, a little bit uh, in a little bit in this podcast. We're actually going to be joined by uh, Alan Sistler a little bit later, the man commonly known as the Hawk, to talk about what the travel was like to get the team ready to play in this game. And, and we would be, have been joined by Rick Clawson, much like we were joined by Casey uh, the previous couple of weeks. But Rick, his wife battling cancer, our prayers go out and, to her. And, and, and he mentioned to, to, to mention to everybody, thanks for all the prayers out there for Katie, his wife. And Katie just gave birth just a few weeks ago to their, uh, to their newest addition. So he is being a dad and being a husband. And, uh, but he, 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 he did say that he passed along uh, – his well wishes to all of all nation and he appreciates the thought and prayers and he hopes to get back over here for a game soon. He and Casey normally come to the Florida game when it's in Knoxville. I don't sure that it'll line up this fall just because of all that's going on with him, but he tries to get over as much as he can. Yep. Then we hope to catch up to him soon and continue uh, our prayers and thoughts to, uh, to Rick and his family as well. Tennessee starts the season in 05 ranked number three in the country. Uh, they go to uh, Baton Rouge coming off an ugly loss in Gainesville, Florida, uh, 16 to seven, the Vols could not move the ball offensively. Could not move the ball offensively in this game. Uh, as you rewatched it, you're reminded just how ugly of a first half of football it was, and how hot it was down there. I mean, it was as that's as hot of a football game as I've ever been at in, in my life, and uh, it was one ugly first half, Rob Lewis. Yeah, I mean, was it three turnovers and basically the. A quarter and a half of football, gift wrapped LSU's first touchdown there. I mean, I mean, it looked bad. I mean, it. I've forgotten what a remarkable comeback this was. But I mean, Tennessee had absolutely zero momentum in the first half. Ainge, you know, is is really struggling. Or receiver drops everywhere. I mean, it's, you don't you don't know if it's the environment. You know, playing on a Monday, tra- you know, traveling that day, and get if just for whatever reason. They didn't have any juice at all. And all the mistakes, you know, piled up. And, I, and going back and look, I'd forgotten about this completely. But one of the biggest plays of that game is Jamarcus Russell on that third down right before the half, um, getting tackled inbounds when, and preventing LSU from attempting what would have been a chip shot field goal and going up 24 nothing at halftime. I mean, that was enormous. From one of my favorite recruits to deal with ever, Jamarcus <laughs> Russell. It was an enormous play and, and total mismanagement of the clock. Ironic in Les Miles' first home game <laughs> in Tiger Stadium, they had, they had clock management problems. You, you know, the other, the, the other thing, I mean, look, the, we, we talk about Jerry Garantano's play, um, Austin at, at Alabama and the play that he made there. I mean, for a lot of people, until David Cutcliffe got here and repaired some things, you know, Eric Ainge's bouquet toss, however it was described by everybody that wrote it, what was going to be the defining play for him um, until really till David Cutcliffe, you know, got it, got it turned around for him and got his career going back in the right direction. But 
you know, that play um, was going to be his defining moment. And then obviously he has to go out because of injury there. It gives Rick Clawson the chance. And it was mentioned in the broadcast. And Austin, you know this. You knew it at the time. You've talked to enough people then. A lot of people were in the Rick Clawson camp and, and yep. on that football team. Didn't mean that they hated Eric Ainge. It was not about that. Rick Clawson was a better quarterback in August. And everybody on the football team knew it. And that's particularly the offensive guys, which is why there was some division there when this selection of, of making Eric Ainge the starting quarterback came about in August. Well, they were very divided. And this game, you know, I think proved that a lot. Um, I, at the end of the day, you know, the kind of fall from what was his freshman year and playing so loose and, and, and wins against Florida and Georgia and, 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 and others, you know, and, you know, just and playing the way he did in 05, it just kind of, you know, everybody, you know, he started dying the hair, had the, the, the tips, you know, bleached and all that stuff. And granted, he did, you know, Cutcliffe built him back up uh, into being a really good quarterback as a junior and senior. But this year there was a divide. Um, you know, heck, Brent, they didn't cross – they didn't go into the red zone, uh, the LSU red zone, until 948 or whatever it was in the third quarter. I mean, it was a game where Tennessee had no life offensively and then just kind of started chipping away with it with little things. And, of course, you have, the you know, the Jonathan Heffany interception in this game. Um, you know, it, it, it was a remarkable comeback. I remember getting in the car that morning, I think at like 6 a.m., and driving all the way straight to the stadium, you know, there in Baton Rouge and then from Knoxville. And then, you know, going back and spending the night in Jackson, Mississippi that night. I mean, it was it was a uh, it was kind of kind of a crazy night. Yeah, I mean, the whole travel for everybody was was, was completely chaotic and um you know, the thing back to, to Clawson, I, I remember I, I sat down with Rick Clawson in, in the preseason um, and, and basically just asked him straight up, you know, do you think this is an open competition? You know, and, and, and he believed it was, and he believed he was the quarterback who should win the competition based on the way he finished playing that previous season. Of course, he uh, had a huge game in the Cotton Bowl against Texas A&M, and, and they were moving. They were a different type of offense with Rick Clawson at quarterback. Uh, but, Rob, you could tell – that once he got into a rhythm in the second half and got going, he was he was doing things that, that Eric Ainge couldn't do at that point in his career in terms of directing traffic. He knew the LSU personnel. You know, he, he was – instead of having to turn to Randy Sanders all the time for everything, he, he was making the right reads and making the right checks and got Tennessee going to the point that it was Tennessee that I thought was the tougher football team in the second half. I thought they were in better condition. And I thought Tennessee wore LSU out in the second half as opposed to LSU wearing out Tennessee. Yeah, I, I agree. And the thing that jumped out with me with Rick was just how quickly he was getting the ball out, how, you know, how, uh, the quick decisions. You know, knew, it, it appeared that he knew where he wanted to go with the ball based off what he was seeing when he was under center. And, again, you know, not we all know what player Eric turned into – you know, Cutcliffe got here, but the first half it was obvious he wasn't feeling the pressure. Rick had um, you know, just had a, a a grasp of what he wanted to do, where he wanted to go with the football. And you mentioned the conditioning. I mean, it was obvious as you move into that fourth quarter that Tennessee's offensive line was getting some traction that just wasn't there in the first half, and and really you know highlighted by the, the touchdown in overtime where they just kind of bulldozed it. And yeah, but- Brent. 
Brent, and, and I, I was going to say the fourth down play, they're inside the five there for the you know, with, with, for the final touchdown makes it 24-21 and just power it in. Yeah, they pushed. I mean, they moved some people around during that game. They were playing some young guys on the offensive line. That LSU defensive front was really good. Kyle Williams, really good, really good football player. Obviously played Pittman. a long time for, for the Bills and Pittman and those guys. Clint Dorsey was a young player uh, on, on that defensive front. There were, there were a lot of familiar names that you had talked to in recruiting. And, and, and that's and that and you know that's one of the things when you kind of watch these games back that kind of jumps out at me. So many guys Tennessee finished that that were involved in that that ended up. Obviously, there were guys that LSU was involved with that ended up at Tennessee. A lot of guys on that LSU roster, Tennessee was heavily involved with in, in recruiting um, as well. Had the exact to, same to, thing occur to me, Hubbard. I mean, it was just one after another. Craig Davis, the wide receiver. You, you already mentioned you know Pittman and. Um, just, I mean, Jamarcus Russell. I mean, Tennessee was in deep, deep in that one. Yeah, Chiron Carey was the guy that captivated Chiron Tennessee fans. Carey. I mean, he did. Tennessee fans were all worried, you know, wanted to know about about Chiron Carey, and you know that Tennessee was involved in a lot of those players there. And you could see this was the the continued build of LSU from, you know, Les Miles inherited a very good football team when Nick Saban left because he had built them up, and and those two were recruiting on a national scale. That's when you know both teams are recruiting the right type of people, Austin. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, Tennessee had, you know, uh, several really, really talented, high-profile recruits uh, that turned into be really good players in this game. And then LSU, you're right. I mean, LSU's always been a great job. You know, Jerry Donardo and some of those coaches of, you know, Tiger Pass just couldn't, you know, get it turned around. You know, and Nick came in there, started recruiting the way you're supposed to recruit, started doing the things you're supposed to do. And uh, Les Miles picked right up on that. He picked up on that for a half in this game, and then all of a sudden things went south in a hurry as uh, as Rick Clawson, uh, you know, Captain, it is what it is, uh, you know, after this game. Um, you know, he, he brought back, uh, you know, I, this season turned out to be a big turd, but this was a diamond of a game and uh, a diamond of a, of a memory for a lot of all fans, you know, just because – you look at how the the Falcons got swallowed up in the Saints' first game back after Hurricane Katrina. Tennessee could have easily gotten swallowed up when it was down twenty-one to nothing, and uh, you called it a bouquet toss. I thought it was more like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sky hook um, when when he just tossed it into the into the night. Either way, it, it could have went south, and and the 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 group of kids that Tennessee had on that 05 team, Kevin Simon, Jonathan Hefney, uh, Gerald Riggs, Rick Clawson, some of those veterans, they did not allow it to go south. Yeah, I mean, you got guys like Mahalona, who who played a big factor in there, Justin Harrell, who, who made big plays in there. You, you mentioned that Rick Clawson was captain. It is what it is. He, he masked that pretty good. There's a little booing if you, if you watch the TV replay. There's some booing while Philip Fulmer's being interviewed. That booing comes from the fact that Rick Clawson grabbed a football and heaved it into the student section after the game was over. That was his kind of moment of celebration as he grabbed a, a game ball and just hurled it into the student section. And then when he did his post-game interview, you know, Fulmer, Coach Fulmer was talking about how he's the best story in college football. All Rick wanted to talk about was his teammates that had been loyal to him because Rick was better. You know, Rick, Rick was I – mean, he felt like he should have been the quarterback. He felt like he should have been the quarterback from the get-go that season because he felt like he won the job in fall camp. 
but but he did you know his part and um, tried to stay the course and 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 you know did not call a lot of cause a lot of infighting or anything like that. But there were a lot of people in the program that were worried about that team in August when the decision was made about the quarterback deal. Again, it wasn't because you know all these people just disliked Eric Ainge as a person. It was the fact that Rick Lawson was better in every um, scrimmage that they played and all those things. Now. Uh, so I, I, before we go, go ahead further, I want to ask you your opinion on something. Sure. Big, more big picture stuff from that season because one decision affects a career, so to speak. I, you know much more about this than I do. Randy Sanders, where do you think he personally stood on that debate? Oh, I, I think Randy Sanders was in the Rick Claw was in the Rick Clawson camp. I, I think, and see that decision to go with Eric Ainge and more divide it ends up costing him his job at the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, he left on his own, but you're right. I mean, you know, it ended up, you know, that thing falling apart. It was it was set up – what was interesting about that for a big picture standpoint, I'm glad you asked this question, is, you know, Eric had gotten hurt um, in that Notre Dame game the previous year. Yep. So Rick Lawson comes in, throws the interception, they lose that game. But then Rick Lawson gets it going the, the last, I don't know, three games of the season. It, it's the um, – he's got the Kentucky game – or the Vanderbilt game. The Kentucky, Kentucky game, Auburn, SEC championship game, right, and then Texas A and M. Those those were four games, and and I know it sounds crazy, but missing those four games for Eric Ainge's development was bigger than anybody thought that they would be. I and mean, you go back and look at what Peyton Manning did as a freshman, his last four games, and how much he continued to improve. Big deal. I'm not comparing Ainge to Manning, but missing those four games were, was a big deal. Then they get to spring because Rick played well. It became a comp- they let it become a competition. Fulmer never said, "Hey, this is our guy." You know, it was it was spring practice, and then Philip goes to SEC media days. He's asked about Eric Ainge, and he makes a, a sly comment that's something to the effect of, "Yeah, he kind of reminds us of a guy we used to have running around over there at War Number Sixteen for us." He didn't say, "Hey, he's at the same place Peyton was after his freshman year," but he made a reference to Peyton. And so a lot of people took that to mean he was comparing him to be the next Peyton Manning. And then they go into the August camp. And what I remember about August camp in that deal is Rick was so much further along in managing the offense. If you put him out there to throw the football, it's not a comparison. It's not even close. But when you got it in 11 on 11 settings and scrimmages, Rick was more productive. The offense was give, he was giving John Chavis problems that Eric Ainge was not given them, given that defense. And that was a solid defense. And so a lot of people felt like, you know, his numbers after every scrimmage was better. And that was, those were back when it was open scrimmages, Rob. You were there. We were taking notes, keeping stats. And you walk out of that and you say he was the better quarterback and that Rick Clawson was the better quarterback. Yet it became – it was uh, it was a competition, but then you wondered if it really was a competition. And, again, I remember the day he was announced as a starter, some people in the program said, this is going to be a problem for this football team. And it, and, and it was part of the problem for the football team. I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any question, any doubt about that. But, Austin, you mentioned this. You, you called it, you know, this was their diamond of a game, and it was a game that I thought of all the games I've covered, of everything I've been a part of, settings and everything else, I don't know that I've ever seen a team at a greater disadvantage going into a football game and playing a football game than Tennessee was at that night. I, I'm not going to be critical of what the people of Louisiana were going through at that time because that's unimaginable. There was no reason 
Tennessee and LSU should have played a football game that night in Baton Rouge. There was still scaffolding in the stadium where they were doing renovations. The stadium was not even close to being complete. No place for anybody to stay. And the conference commissioner told Tennessee they got to come down day of the game, which is unheard of. I guarantee you Doug Dickey would have not have that they would have not have gotten on that plane and gone down there and played that way. There were Tennessee people not happy about the fact that they had to go down there. They get up, they go down that morning, they go to a hotel, there's no rooms, literally just laid on bags in the lobby is how they got off their feet at, at a hotel that they that they got. And then they went to the stadium early. And it was the heat index of a hundred degrees. I think it's the greatest one of the greatest disadvantages you've ever seen a team go go into, and for Tennessee to find a way to win it, it is utterly incredible uh, to me. Um, I don't. Well, know the guy that used to play quarterback at LSU. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're right. The subplots in this game. It, it just it made no sense for Tennessee to win this game because it was set up for LSU's night. Okay, that's what it was set up for, and um, Tennessee ruined the party is what they did, and. There are a lot of Tennessee fans that were um, obviously excited about that. There are a lot of Tennessee people that were excited about that. I'll never forget, I told this story uh, on the GQ. We go into the booth to set up, open up the door to go into the booth, and it's concrete dust. And there's like a piece of metal hanging down where they're going to put up two windows in the booth, but the booth is not done. There's basically not a countertop. The countertop's got like, cut metal around it you're going to cut yourself up and everything else so we go down to the construction area behind the little construction netting and get cinder blocks and there's a piece of plywood propped up in the in the in the booth and we make a makeshift desk to call the game off of it was called off of we were sitting on pallets basically and we make it a makeshift desk in that booth to call the game and the LSU people come in, like their SID people and like assistant AD people come in to check on us to make sure everything's good. Hey, you guys doing okay? Of course we walk in. I've got concrete dust all over my, my dress pants. You know, Tim Berry's lost like 14 pounds because he's sweating like crazy to set up. Bob Kessling's just, you know, beside himself that this is the, the boost situation. And we were polite enough and said, you know, this is you guys aren't ready for a game. I can't believe we're playing a game here. You're not ready. It kind of offended the LSU people a little bit. You know, well, we're doing everything and this, this. You guys got everything you need. Yeah, we got everything you need. And the guy turned to grab the door, to open the door to leave the booth. And when he did, the doorknob came off in his hand. And Tim Berry had to get a screwdriver and we had to pry the door open so that the LSU people could leave the booth for our broadcast because he was stuck inside because the doorknob came off, which we just kind of looked at. Yeah, you guys are, are ready. Uh, Rob, remember they had those guys in Austin, you were there. They had those guys and those and gals in the neon green shirts that said FW on it. They were the fire watchers because there was no sprinkler system. There's no <laughs> alarm system in their, in their stadium or in their new uh, renovated press box that was taking place there. Uh, it, it was crazy. And so when we get done, that's when Philip told Kessling to bring uh, the center, bring a cinder block home with you. And so uh, we threw a cinder block on the equipment truck to go back to Knoxville that was painted up with the final score. 
Uh, but it was really, truly an, an unfair advantage and ask a lot to do. Then Tennessee had to turn around and play six days later at noon against Ole Miss when they got back at sometime middle of the morning, um, middle of the night on Tuesday morning to get back. So uh, just a crazy setup. Still can't believe the SEC allowed that game to be played on a Monday night. Uh, but to Tennessee's credit, they found a way, you know, and, and, and a, a way in a game that um, really was set up for them to lose in, in so many different ways in a game that dictated kind of the direction of the season. That, that was the high water mark because it went down, spiraling down the hill after that, obviously. And, um, but that was their moment in the sun as Tennessee um, comes from behind in miraculous fashion to beat uh, LSU on that night in Baton Rouge. We've got uh, the Hawk coming up next here on the Rocky Top Rewind. He's going to talk about what it was like by getting everything set up down there and to get there that day. So kind of a unique perspective on this game that's coming up next here on the Rocky Top Rewind brought to you by our, our good friends at Blue Water Climate Control. Don't forget, um, if you're in the market for a heating and air condition, do what, um, do what Dana Marie did. She called a technician. Um, they did a great job, and uh, they let, said that the technician listened to their concerns, come checked out the system. They came in, fixed them immediately. The reviews on Blue Water Climate Control are just incredible. Rusty G, they found and fixed a problem that three companies, three prior companies, could not find and could not fix. The reason they can find those problems and the reason they fix those problems for you is real simple. They send out a technician. They don't send out a salesperson to come out and try to fix things for you or tell you what you need. They, they bring out an expert to tell you exactly what you need and present all of their options to all your options to you. Blue Water Climate Control is veteran-owned, family-operated. Jeremy and his staff do a great job. They're going to give you what you need. They're not going to give you more than you need. If you need a replacement unit, they'll replace it. If you can fix it, they're going to fix it for you. An expert is going to tell you what you need and lay out a plan for you. They have financing opportunities for you, same as cash, rent to own, whatever you need to get yourself um, comfortable in your home. Blue Water can do it. Give them a call at 865-299-2290 or visit them at bluewaterclimatecontrol.com to make an appointment. Blue Water is an authorized dealer for American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning. The Hawk coming up next right here on the Rocky Top Rewind podcast. Welcome back to the Rocky Top Rewind podcast brought to you by Blue Water Climate Control. Glad to have you with us. Austin Price, Brent Hubs, joined by the Hawk. Alan Sisler is with us here to talk about this crazy deal that was the 2005 uh, Tennessee LSU game. And, and we've been doing a lot of former players. There's a lot of storylines to this game from, from a play standpoint. But the biggest storyline of the week was would they play or would they not play? Alan, just take us through the week. Um, what, what was it like, just the unknowns going into, you know, are you going to go? When are you going to go? How are you going to go? What, what was that week like from your guys' equipment standpoint, trainers, managers, and everybody just how do you get ready to go down there? Well, you know, it is tough kind of not having an idea of what you're going to do. But for us, you know, we, we try to stay to routine and, you know, we got all our checklists. And uh, once we get word, then we're just kind of ready to load up and, and go when we go. But uh, obviously, with practice and and when you got that decision of when you were going, uh, changed from you know usually going on Thursday after practice to now you went Sunday morning and uh, stayed in the hotel and got up Monday morning and set the locker room up. So it 
it was a little it was a little different uh but for us once once we get the words you know it's it's pretty much routine then but uh obviously it did change change a lot of things what, what was it i mean there was so much confusion all week long externally on what you know would the game be moved to knoxville would they play it at a different day would they play could they play in an open date at some point in time kind of monday was sort of the last sort of the last you know heave ho kind of to get it going what just i mean when did you guys know it was going to happen? When did you like, you know, you mentioned getting a call. I mean, when were you like, okay, we're, we're rolling out Sunday for a Monday game? Well, I honestly don't remember the, the exact time when we were told, but obviously when we knew it was Monday, Monday, then they started meeting, you know, about when travel was going to happen and everything. And they just came and told us, you know, we're going to have to go day of the game. So you guys are going to go, you know, we would still go early, but the problem for us was, wasn't a problem, just kind of we went Sunday, got there late, spent the night, got up in the morning, but we had to get out of our rooms so that the team could take our rooms just so they'd have a place to go sit and relax, uh, you know, because obviously there weren't a lot of hotel rooms there, so uh, we had to get out of there for the team to come take our spot. But, you know, went down Sunday and, you know, got to the hotel, went to dinner that night, and uh, got up that morning, just set the locker room up, and we stayed there all day long. So. Long day on Monday, being at the stadium all day for a eight o'clock, nine o'clock, or eight o'clock game or so. So, uh, long day. However, you're a better man than me. I, I I've never called Hawk anything but Hawk. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hawk, when when you got there, you know, there was obviously the whole, you know, you know, the the team bus gets kind of, you know, uh, you know, ravaged by the LSU fans and all that stuff. When did you kind of learn of all that stuff happening? And and then just kind of could you sense that the atmosphere was going to be what it was? I mean, it, you know, first game back after the hurricane, um, obviously the Saints had had a really, you know, crazy atmosphere when they played the Falcons in their first game back at the, at the Superdome. You know, could you kind of sense all day long since you were kind of stuck at the stadium all day? Well, you know, we, we were there all day and we set up and then we let our kids kind of go get to – because we like for our kids to get the experience of being on the road games to different places, whether it's Oxford, seeing the Grove or, you know, wherever. And you, you never get to come back to these places a lot. So we sent our guys out and, you know, they go up to tailgates and people were feeding them and everything. And they were just like, man, this place is crazy, you know. Of course, we knew it was crazy, but it was different level at this time just because of the circumstances. And uh, I just remember the game and the crowd, man, it was just like, in a frenzy almost, you know. So you did get a different feeling just because I think they were just thirsting for something good to happen for them. And, and obviously down there, football in the home game, what it means. And, you know, Monday night football, you know, that's the cool thing. All our kids and everybody was just, you know, we were Monday night football. So that, that was that was kind of special. So, yeah, it was a, it was a little bit of a frenzy down there with the, uh, how they did the bus and the game and the fans. And obviously they got off to a fast start on us. So it was uh, – it was crazy. It, it was it was interesting getting in because I, I remember that, you know, the, the traffic in that area was just a disaster to begin with. There were so many roads that were still closed. But then you also had – there were, like, checkpoints. I mean, you had to get through a checkpoint to get in. They were only letting, you know, certain certain cars come through and, and, and get in that way. I mean, I, I remember the stories about the travel down for you guys was not easy, right? Yeah, we some there was a little small plane that went down with a small group, and then Max and the managers and everybody came down uh, on bus. And I think Max said it was around Hattiesburg. I could be wrong, but I think that's what it was. And they had given them a letter, and so you had to exit the interstate, 
they had a checkpoint. And if you didn't have that letter, then they sent you back across the overpass and back, back where you were going. So, uh, that, that was interesting, you know, the checkpoints and getting, getting down there and obviously everything that was going on. Just, uh, it was crazy. It, it, and I mean, you know, you mentioned all the, the fans and how important the game was and, you know, it was Monday night football and, and, everything what what do you remember about about coach Fulmer and, and the staff and kind of how they made sure the guys were ready to play because there are a lot of people that were a lot of Tennessee fans were mad you know hey the SEC's giving us the shaft this is not fair you're coming down day of it's a huge disadvantage you know that type of thing what what do you remember just kind of the circumstances surrounding that you know coach Fulmer always did a good job of he was pretty steady with routine and everything I think we just tried to stay best routine we could outside of travel which was out of everybody's control but uh you know he he's he was pretty you know even keel and and just kind of we went about our business and just tried to keep everything as routine as possible uh but you know I think early on you know remember the game Josh we were dropping passes it was just you could tell everything was a little bit out of sync and out of rhythm, you know. So I, it took us a while to kind of settle in a little bit. And, uh, but, but they did a good job. He, he stays pretty even keel to keep everybody, you know, not getting chaotic and seeing him frazzled or whatever, you know. So, you know, everybody kind of followed his lead in that regard outside of the things we could control. When, when Tennessee starts to make that comeback and they insert Rick Clawson, take me through the mood on the sideline. What was that like? <laughs> What, what was Rick like, you know, going in? Because obviously it was more than, you know, just a game for him because he's going back to a place that he's career, and all of a sudden he's, you know, being given the ball with a huge hole in that raucous atmosphere. Yeah, Rick Rick was like a coach on the sideline, so he, he kind of always stayed in the game mentally and was ready. And he was – and Rick's a pretty calm guy and relaxed guy. And, uh, you know, he, he had – really played good all preseason. And, and so, you know, it wasn't a surprise for him to come in and do okay. But for that situation, I, I can remember uh, after <laughs> Ainge's interception uh, in the end zone, it was made it 21 to nothing for the half. And like when I say frenzy, that place was uh, – it's like they were ripping the seats out of there. They were going nuts. And Max Parrott and I looked at each other and like, man, we might, might as well all start go ahead and packing this thing up because they're going to come out of here at halftime and just run us out of this stadium. And uh, Rick went in and kind of settled things, and we got in at halftime. You know, we had a really good defense at that time, and uh, we just kind of chipped away at it, you know, just kind of stayed at it, chipped away, and got a score, and got a stop. And, you know, before we knew it, we were right back in the game. But, you know, <laughs> leading up into that time, we thought it, we were getting ready to get absolutely run out of that stadium. It was inter- I told a story earlier on the podcast about how the stadium wasn't done. Um, you know, from a locker room standpoint, I think it was fine for you guys, but it, there was scaffolding in the stadium. The right. box wasn't done. And, you know, the Vol Network, we brought a cinder block home as, as a souvenir from there. And, and Coach Fulmer always played it right down the middle. You know, hey, we're going to do what we need to do. Um, if that's what they say, we'll roll out. We'll play in the middle of a parking lot at midnight. We don't care. You tell us where to be and we'll be there. After the game, what was that locker room like? Because I, I, I kind of got the feeling from him that he, and while he never said it, it was he. You know, he didn't like anything about the setup. You know, leading up to it, but he had to manage his team. But what was the locker room like after that game? You know, it's it's crazy after big games and big wins, especially overtime or last second wins or whatever. It, it gets pretty chaotic. Uh, you know, just 
guys running all over the field and, you know, people getting into the locker room a little later or having to wait to, you know, get everybody in there, get settled or, you know, biggest thing for us, you know, we're, we're looking for helmets laying on the ground or somebody throwing them in the air, leaving them on the sideline. So uh, I'm not sure I can even remember being in the locker room at that time because normally the team and everybody gets in there and it gets so packed, you don't really get a chance to get in there and hear it. But, I, you know, obviously after the game and the way that thing finished, just the excitement, you know, we, we knew we needed to get a win, an SEC win. Uh, just the going down and having to play on Monday night and traveling down that day, uh, gosh, it was so hot. Um, you know, I, I don't really remember much about Coach, but I just remember the team. Just It was just uh, incredible energy and, and, you know, exhausted too, you know, for one-day trip and overtime and the heat and being down early. So just real emotional, but a, a lot of excitement, obviously. Kind of wrapping things up here a little bit is the, the thing nobody remembers about that whole week and that whole trip was what you guys had to do on Tuesday, you know, that you, that you came back. I mean, you played play Ole Miss the next Saturday. I think that was a noon game against yeah. Ole Miss. It was like the worst possible scenario. What was getting back and getting to practice? I mean, you guys couldn't have gone to sleep to get everything set up to go, could you? I, I, we may have got a couple hours in between, but, I mean, once you get back and you get everything, you know, at that time, normally you have a Sunday and you – you get the laundry going, you get the truck unloaded, and you work about three or four hours, and everybody goes home. Well, heck, at that time, it was like, we're going right out to the practice field, you know, to, to do whatever we need to get done today. Obviously, it wasn't, a, you know, a, a big day for us or whatever, but we had to get everything back. And I, I'm not sure at that time if we had uh, – I guess we still had game and practice helmets, but still you had a lot of guys that, you know, had their gear and their cleats or whatever, you know, that you had to get right back out and, and go right at it again. So – if we did sleep, it wasn't much. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those – you don't have a trip like that very often, but, uh, you know, like a late trip back from Arkansas or something like that, you know, and you got to turn right back around and get everything ready. But but that was a little different. That was really quick. Yeah, like like an hour and a half quick. Yeah. Like, like truck got here, loaded up, and, and, right. and go to the house type, type, and start right. straight to the practice field deal. Again, probably, it, probably – we probably had a crew out there setting up for practice and a crew unloading the truck. You probably did because, I mean, it was a skeleton day because Coach had to back everything off. So it was just a crazy turnaround for everybody and a crazy trip. But a, but a big win for Tennessee in, in the most bizarre circumstances for not just football players but the coaching staff and all the support staff as well. Hawk, we appreciate you recounting uh, that night and, and, that, and that crazy trip for Tennessee on a, on a big win on a SEC Monday night, not a, not a Saturday night, but a Monday night in Baton Rouge. We appreciate you joining us. That's going to do it for this edition of the Rocky Top Rewind podcast brought to you by Blue Water Climate Control.